Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this episode, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter chats with the husband and wife team of Charlie Hammer and Nancy Kevazanjian of Beaverdam, Wisconsin. Charlie and Nancy adopted the motto, Our Soil, Our Strength, in 1980, started no-tilling soybeans in 1985, and have been using no-till and strip-till techniques and the latest technologies ever since in order to achieve their profitability and conservation goals in their 1,900-acre operation. A frequent attendee of the National No-Tillage Conference, Charlie's always trying new ideas to make his operation more efficient. In addition, Frank explains the two biggest mistakes Canadian no-tillers make, and he answers a listener question about the extent of no-till in the U.S. Now, without further ado, here are Frank, Nancy, and Charlie. So we're here with Charlie and Nancy today at Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. So is this a multi-generation farm? You're not the first to start this family farm, are you? No, I'm the fourth generation. Right. Okay. It's, a, it's 153 years, I think, this right. year. Right. We yeah. did get the sesquicentennial. So Nancy, you didn't grow up as a farm girl, did you? I didn't, but I always loved farms, and I grew up on Long Island, and we used to drive up to upstate New York and Pennsylvania, and I loved the cows, and it's so much like that here in Wisconsin that I always wanted to live on a farm, and I found my farmer. (laughs) There's an interesting story here. Remind me, you you were working in Chicago, weren't you? I was working as a reporter on the Commodity Exchange, uh, covering the, the livestock and I was at a Top Farmers of America conference when I met Charlie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been all downhill since then? Yeah, so far it's working actually, it surprisingly. Who you ask. <laughs> 38, almost 39 years now. Yeah. Well, that's great, that's great. So how long have you been no-towing or strip-towing? I would say the first year we started is 1985. Yeah. What got you into it? I remember BASF. 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 Okay. They brought a no-till drill and they said, let's try it. Right. And we no-tilled soybeans into standing corn stubble. And his dad stood there and shook his head and said, this is never going to work. What kind of drill was it? Tie or a great tie? tie? A, a they, tie? they lined them up with uh, sales right. people and then they would uh, drive uh, around with them. And then um, they would, you know, you'd hitch onto it. And right. I, I believe the first year was maybe eight to 10 acres. And uh, we did a side by side then. Yeah. And you believe it or not, that was 85, and I think the yield on that was like 52 bushel or so. So we haven't advanced the yield like we have in corn on soybeans. You know, we're moving forward on some, but it's not that upward curve or so that you'd be seeing on corn. I remember back in the 80s going down to Jim Kinsella's yeah. at Lexington, and he was the promoting the yep. BASF mm-hmm. system. and really. Yeah, Jim was, well, we've... We made a lot of trips to We made to a lot Kinsella's. of trips down to Kinsella's. Yeah. He was, I would say, you know, a great early promoter. He was... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was probably the only woman in the audience <laughs> in those days. And I'll yeah. tell you that it's so nice to see now that there are more women 
when I go to right. farm meetings, and they're involved in production agriculture. So how many acres are you farming? Mm, we have about 1,940 acres, including approximately 40 acres of CRP. And uh, tell me about the rotation. Well, we're heavy on corn. Right. We try to get a three-year rotation, corn, soybeans, and wheat. But, it, you know, it's, like, it's hard, especially in Wisconsin. We didn't get a lot of our wheat in last fall because it was such a late, wet fall. Right. And then even what we have in, we mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah, it's not looking too good. We had winter kill. So between the late fall and the wet, cold springs, it's tough to get, keep the wheat. So I take it you've been no-tilling beans every year since 85. Pretty much? Pretty much. We got a little sidetracked back in the 90s there, early 2000, <laughs> when we went to 20-inch rows, and that made residue management a kind of a challenge. Right. But uh, we've pretty much, um, in 86, then we uh, probably did 20 or 40 acres. So it was a progression forward, not a big leap. So what was the uh, first major uh, no-till bean planter that you bought? I mean, the ties were kind of small. The ties were, uh, I believe the first one that we uh, purchased was a Great Plains. Okay. Yep. Great Plains back <laughs> in about 86, 87. And then, um, because we had a, a rep in town here that was pretty good with the equipment and that, then we rolled into the tie being like a 14-footer. Sure. So, um, and that was the Coulter Caddy system. And then once John Deere came out with the 750, that was kind of like the ultimate. Yeah, kind of revolutionized no-till beans. It, it did. And we got one of the first year they came out. We got the first one. They were limited production or limited quantities. And so we were able to uh, get one of the first ones the first year. And, and not everything was no-till, it was still some conventional or chisel powder ground and, and that, that drill was worked quite well. So that would have been what, <laughs> seven and a half inch rows? Seven and a half, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are you using the no-till beans today? No-till we're using our planter. We've okay. got a lot of money invested in a technically advanced planter. So we're, we're, we're using that as much as we can. And you're using this for corn too, right? Corn, yes. So right. what is the planter? Well, we're running a John Deere 1775 uh, NT, which is, stands for narrow transport. Uh, it's the exact emerge version of the right. of the planter. So it's a uh, uh, it's the high speed planter, but it we don't use it as a high speed planter. We just don't have enough horsepower. Plus, we have got a lot of rocks in Dodge County. But right. uh, the impact at five or six miles an hour with a rock is somewhat, you can get acceptable. Nine and 10 would be generally a train wreck. <laughs> so, so what row width and how many rows? 30 inch rows, 24 rows. Okay. And if 24, 30 inches, a 60 foot pattern, and that fits quite well uh, actually, one of the uh, friends of mine in Iowa, we got to talk and, and we, we were doing controlled traffic before controlled traffic was something <laughs> to take a look at. Right. For some, we, by default, you could say that we were doing tra controlled traffic on a fair amount of our acres just because we were on 
on a 24-row pattern, a 60-foot, 120-foot sprayer, a 24-row, 60-foot side dress applicator. The only thing that's not in that would be then our harvester. Right. Our harvester is running on um, uh, the 12 rows. So tell me a little about how you got into corn, no-tilling corn. Well, <laughs> no-tilling corn's not that bad. Residue is the challenge. Right. And it's a big challenge. When we were doing strip tilling with certain equipment, uh, some of the equipment out here, their claim to fame was you don't really need a roll cleaner. We'll just chew up all the residue into this strip. Well, once it's in that strip, you can't remove it with roll cleaners on your plant or whatever. And uh, so we definitely saw a uh, yield reduction. We had some challenges there with oleopathic. Well, you're talking one, corn on corn. Corn on corn, yeah, right? And that's that, that, and it still is a challenge for us. From what my idea of a good corn on corn no-till operation or strip-till. Yeah, especially as we push those corn populations over 200, 250. Right. You know, the residue again is the big challenge. Residue, residue wasn't management. a problem when we had 150 bushel a year. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, although maybe that you can't, you could say that it's similar because the equipment wasn't up to right. par at 150. We're at 225 or 240. Maybe our equipment is advanced enough, then that kind of all worked in right. parallel together. I don't know. But we even had to learn in a corn bean rotation to make sure that we did a good job harvesting the beans and spreading out the, the resin. And it's still a problem with a large head, a 40-foot head, uh, we're still experiencing really a challenge to get that residue out to 40 feet. Yeah. When it stays in that narrower, you're, you're having challenges with residue, you know, keeping the ground cold. If you come back in a soybeans, you're having a, a challenge there, uh, soil to seed contact and that with the heavier residue there. Well, some of these university engineer, ag engineers say you can't spread evenly over 40 feet and make it work with what we got today. Well, <laughs> I would say that if you can make it work, it's, it's a challenge. And most of the times you find uh, it probably would take maybe a day of tweaking to get it to that mm. point. And sometimes you just don't have the time or, or patience for that. <laughs> So on your uh, three crop rotation, mm -hmm. what percent would be corn, beans, and wheat in a normal year? In a normal year, uh, we take last year was somewhat normal, and this year will be somewhat in a range, you know, 11 to 1,200 of corn, maybe 1,400, and then you'd have 120 to 300 of wheat, and then you'd have that balance in soybeans. Okay. And of your 12, 1,300 corn, how much is continuous corn? We have 180 acres of continuous corn. Okay. Then continuous corn for every year, we say it's 15 years, but is it? it's probably 15 to 17 years now. It's a big experiment, long-term experiment. <laughs> well, that's good. You can learn something out of these long-term Yes, and I, I'd have to, I'll match this up with a lot of soils or and yields that anybody will throw out here. And I'm not trying to just do this to show where we're at, but, uh, or to uh, just be a loner out here. But the, the rotational effect is a good effect. Uh, right, I, I think that's, there's, but I think 
continuous corn on corn, our residue and our, how, how much residue we're generating and putting back in the system, I think, is, is something that maybe somebody that's a big proponent of rotation might take notice of what we've accomplished. Right. Well, you know, we have that farm where we have 15, 18, whatever it is, years of continuous corn. We also had the last, this will be three or four years that we've had a variety trials for a seed company. And our variety trials actually yield better than the ones that they do down in Janesville that's in a corn bean rotation. So I don't know if right. we're just better managers. Right. You don't or, know. But that's part of, you know, we could say as proof that we're doing it. Right. We feel like it's Yeah, then it's we, okay can, to we can equal to or exceed what they're doing on their rotated ground. No, we might not ever get 400 bushel corn like no. the corn yield contest right. winners do, but right. we're very happy with, um, we think that it's a good balance. Right. The thing that amazes me on the National Corn Yield Contest is in most years, the no-tillers have the highest total hmm. yield. And, and I think it's because they're innovators. They're willing to try some new things. And uh, I remember, and you were an example of this back in the 90s or so, I couldn't figure out at first why all these no-tillers were running Caterpillar track mm -hmm. tractors. And I think the main reason was they were innovators and were willing to try something yeah. something new. Well, we have tracks on pretty much everything at we this have. point because of the whole issue of compaction. And, you know, you can try to control your traffic as much as possible, but then you also want right. to be as gentle on the soil as possible. Exactly, so right. That was one of the ways we felt like we could. So uh, you, got a, you said you got every, practically everything on tracks. Pretty much. Now, we've, we're channeling a little bit more to this this air pressure system on right. a tractor. So we think that, that that's European technology that we can really come close to it. Tracks are high maintenance. The high maintenance track tractors are, are starting to get expensive. For, and so we're using the European technology for the row, the row um, for the, the tire pressure. So it doesn't have tracks, but it you can tracks. change so the most, pressure. The, the, the sidewall flex. Mm -hmm. This is the, the tractor we're using right now, one of them. That's the footprint over here, the person that installed it. He's actually a retired engineer from Firestone. That footprint there is 18 PSI. We drop that PSI in the field right here. Well, we just drop it, and in the field we'd run 8 PSI. That footprint is 40% larger. And we think we can even drop it down to a little bit less yet. But you're not going to go down the road with it then. Right. But even uh, the planter even has the, planter. the tracks in the, in the middle. So. Okay. In the center. Um, and and I can see a harvester. We've had harvesters for probably 14, 15 years with a tracked undercarriage on okay. that. And a grain cart. What kind Boy, of I can't believe... Farmers would go out. We've had a grain cart go down with tracks mm -hmm. and for a day, and we'd go to next door neighbor and say, Can we rent your grain cart today and put our trail? Man, it, it is just like, whoa. You'd go to half a cart full, and then you'd be concerned about what you were doing in the field. How many bushel on your grain cart? Uh, that's 1,100. What combine you got? Uh, Lexon combine with a tract undercarriage. Let's talk continuous corn. So um, 
what do you do in the fall harvest? You, you, uh, you're going to spread the stalks, you're going to spread the chaff, and then you, you're going to leave it alone in the spring, or you're going to cover crap? We would what? technically like to do a fall strip in there. Okay. And well, that's that, right. You're stripped to th a corn. This would be a fall strip was made on this and then um, planted in, in spring without doing any spring prep then. Okay. We just came back in with good row cleaners on the planter. Already we had to strip in there. And so that would be an ideal world, right. okay? And we didn't get that last fall. A lot of years you don't get that. So we're going to plan B this year, and we've done that in the past. We've taken the, the machine out here we're working on, and that'll be our, our pre-cleaner. And so we'll go out with that and row cleaners and just clean through the field. Because it's going to be wet underneath them. But the strips are already there from that, last fall. No, no you get didn't get anything done. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Maybe we didn't it's get wet. anything done. When you when you normally put down strips in the fall, would you put P and K down? Yeah, we would. Okay. If we have the dry applicator okay. running with it. Okay. Let's go back to this spring. You didn't yep. get any strips made last fall. Right. So. Walk me through what you're doing. How many? Twenty-four row. Twenty-four. Wow, it takes a lot of power to make those. Well, worms, there's though. no, there's really no um, shank on it or anything. There's okay. just one coulter, depth band coulter, a row cleaner, and that's it. Okay. Wow. So then we'll move the residue when the conditions are correct. We'll move the residue and then we'll come back in with that machine out there. The uh, gladiator okay that's slightly modified for spring use right and then we'll put our p and uh, n and p down and some sulfur down about four inches deep with that now this all looks good on paper <laughs> <laughs> so in the spring are you how, how tall will your berms be that you're going to make well, they'll be pretty flat because we're not uh, we're not running a high berm unit you know what i mean right We'll pre-clean and then we won't have any berms. Then we'll run through with that gladiator that was our fall unit. Right. Okay. And so we got uh, uh, some advice and we, and we picked it up ourselves and we agree that the shank in spring is kind of a slicey dicey thing. So we modified this to go with a anhydrous knife and that's modified some so we're not getting a lot of disturbance. Right. And so then we'll put our 1034-0, which is be most of our phosphorus, and 32%, and then we'll stick, stick some sulfur in there. And then we'll um, uh, put that about four inches deep with that knife. And then cover it up and make kind of a nice little berm, hopefully. And then we'll plant into that. And that'll accomplish getting our phosphorus in the ground where rather than surface applied, which is a big thing. So in, in this spring, you're going to make a pre-cleaning one, yep. then you're going to make a regular one to build a berm, right. and then you're going to plant. Plant, yep. Okay. Two passes. And that's, you know, you talk to guys that are in, uh, well, disc grippers or field cultivators or whatever, they're going to make themselves one or two passes also. Exactly. Only thing is we're controlling that seed. Right. We get that controlled traffic now. So we'll have to deal if we have problems in the row or something. Do you see any? Do you think you'll see any difference in yield between fall and spring berms? I. That's a good question. Tell me how. You know, <laughs> I don't think so. There's always can be something. Right. 
you know. But again, if we could do, <laughs> could have done fall, we would have. Yeah, right. This weather. Right. We had this big thing planned for fall here, yeah. and then the wheels fell off of that. We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank, Charlie, and Nancy in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment across the U.S. and Canada. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintilt.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. Every spring, Rick Tallow up in Canada says two problems frequently spell the difference between no-till success and failure. The former reduced tillage agronomist with Alberta reduced tillage linkage in Olds, Alberta says farmers generally start out seeding at the right speed. Unfortunately, they increase their tractor speed toward the end of the day or when rain is expected, and pretty soon they're no-tilling too fast for conditions and the crop suffers. The second biggest headache is that some growers spread straw over the full combine width yet don't have a chaff spreader. He maintains that dealing with chaff is critical. If you don't spread the chaff, it creates a seeding nightmare. It's even worse when the next crop is canola as that crop won't grow in the chaff roll. Now let's get back to our conversation with Charlie and Nancy. So you told me on the phone the other day you were experimenting with where you're putting fertilizer right. close to the seed. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more about that. It, it depends upon what agronomy 101 or whatever it is you want to apply to infertile fertilizer. Okay, so we have the ability with the capstan uh, right. is that we can spot stitch our fertilizer where the seed is. Or we can stitch it in between. Now, do we want it in between or do we want it on a seed? And then right. we'll, be, we'll be using the half rate because normally when you put it on, you have a seed and then you have a seed, okay? For your starter, you know, in fact, you really don't need this right. between the plants. Right. So, you know, do you want to target then one inch before the seed and one inch after, which then would be double the rate because you're less distance. So we're going to be cutting our rate in half, definitely starting there. And then we're going to do some stitching in between the seed and then um, on the seed. So what plant population would you use with no-tilled corn or strip-tilled corn? Uh, well, historically, we kind of like that 40,000 number. Charlie likes a good big stand. We like to have a stand. Now in beans, of course, historically you'd be in that 180 to 200,000 right. or so. And now everybody's ratcheting back. We ratcheted some back last year also. This beans have increased in price. So, you know, we're, we're cutting down on our population. You're, you know, it's more precision planting. Right. Remember when the old days when you had the ties and the Great Plains and even the John Deere's, you know, you'd have three or four of them in a... Yep 
cluster. But on the corn, ideal populations probably anywhere from that 38 to 42 for most hybrids. So a 40,000 will get you, a, if you have a stand of 38 or 39, you're right in the money then. So what are you doing for weed control on corn? Well, weed control, um, it's a challenge these days. We've been on generic herbicides, and now this year we're going to end up putting together our own recipe of basically the generic version of a uh, mix. In other words, a combination of atrazine, uh, callisto, and acetylchlor, safe and acetylchlor. It comes in some generic systems, you know, where you get it, 250 gallon already pre-mixed mm -hmm. okay and that's gonna run you uh, approximately uh, $22 an acre for that base or so it yeah. should undo and so uh, what we're gonna do we should be able to buy each one component and then we'll have to mix when and load and that's gonna be running around 1220 to 1230 an acre so we feel that in the days and then um of the 11 to 1200 acres we'll have uh approximately 60 to 70 percent and this coming year will be non-gmo corn okay and then last year was about the same ratio too about 60 uh, percent of non-gmo corn so how'd you make that decision that's a it's a economic decision and your base genetics are pretty good. Right. And we also have a crop scout who says you don't have to worry so much. You know, the flight of the yeah. beetles weren't bad last fall, so mm -hmm. I'm not so worried about rootworm beetles this year. Right. So how much do you think you're saving per acre on seed costs with the non-GMOs? Well, our move... At least $50. Well, uh, a good non-GMO number was going to trade for about 154 to 190 and I top of the line GMO will sell for at 290 to 300. So not quite half. Right. Then it depends upon how you want to figure it. But it's know. probably about $100 a bag or $50 well, it's a, a, a. It's 100 and some dollars a bag. You just, you know, it could be up to $150 a bag or it could be right. $120. So at right. $120 or $60 an acre. Now you add $20 of herbicide, now you're at, you know, $80, and now you, you be, you're creative with something else, and now you're, you're getting up to 90, and now you get more creative, and you're up to 100. <laughs> so uh, you side dress? Yes. What yep. do you, what do you, how do you side, side dress? What do you put on? Nitrogen's a big, complicated system. And we maybe make more work out of it than it does. <laughs> but it'll be, you know, see, we have got some ground with manure on it, which will have some nitrate there. And then where we don't, like the corn on corn, we'll do about, you know, let's just pick a number of, say, 210 um, pounds of nitrogen we're going to apply. We might be on a slightly heavier side, but, yeah, 180 to 2. 210 you know and so well, generally we'll, I will put on about 60 to 70 pounds pre or through through the applicator or weed and feed or somehow mm, right. the balance would be in in a probably a v4 v5 or 6 nitrogen side dress then with stream of ours 
Well, those were the uh, the 360s. That's true, yeah. The yield 360s. We used to have Colkers, and then we we used to do split row. And you know, there's a case where we we should have had a whole bunch of interns help because we're, <laughs> we're the next year you'd split that with soybeans, and we could definitely see the difference where that soybean was planted where the nitrogen was yeah. versus not. Yeah. So you'd have variable beans. Now, we should have taken a yield check, of course, but how you do it on a roll by roll. Corn, we can do a roll by roll variability. What's your yield goal with corn? Man, probably an overall yield goal of 240. How about beans? Beans, <laughs> 60 would be a nice number, 65 would be a lot better, but we're trending into that low 60s, high 50s. How about wheat? Wheat, 100, 110, I like to Well, see that's good, there. right. Tell me about your cover crops. Wow. <laughs> <They're laughs> you you that, brought it up. That's even more of <laughs> an experiment than the beginning days of no-till. We're still trying to make cover crops work. Out here, where we, where we have wheat, it works really well. And we'll put in a... a because it comes off early enough. It comes right, off early right. enough and we can get a nice mix. We, we like to use some of the, uh, the big rooted crops like the radishes and the turnips. And then we like to put some peas in there. We put some sunflowers in there just I because it looked really the, pretty. I saw them across the road. Yeah, and we did that more just to make it look pretty and, and get attention of other yeah. people. There was buckwheat in there that um, flowered early that was really pretty. So sometimes it, you know, it's, it's a mixture of we believe we're feeding the soils. We don't know what, you know, what all the good is, but we know we have to feed the, the uh, microbes in our soils. Right. Um, we've also used rye after soybeans, and that seems to work. Our, our corn just comes off too late. You know, we're picking corn and it's snowing sometimes, so right. there's no way we can get a cover crop there. But right. we do make a practice of mm -hmm. using cover crops after wheat or small grains, and then also... Um, if we have, when we've had rained out spots or, or spots where there are big water holes, we'll get in there and seed it down because it keeps the weeds down, it keeps the soil in place. And again, if we can find a way to get it established in the fall, it would be great, but we just have, we're, we're still learning. Yeah, and prevent plant, you know, the, the guys that take silage off of that should be a no-brainer. Exactly. I right. mean, those guys should be just, you know, enthused about it. And then, well, we'll go back into the 80s, so Jim Kinsella down there, uh, he was promoting, and those days you had set aside, if you recall, back in the 80s and 90s, yep. where, you know, if you planted a thousand acres of corn, you might have a 10% set aside. Well, take them 80 to 100 acres and put a good set aside, a good cover crop, alfalfa at that point, or something, and yeah. put some on it and let weeds grow up. Right. My dad was uh, cover cropping clover in the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. yeah. and then we got away from it. So what labor does it take to run this place? Mm. I know I know Nancy works 20 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Charlie's a little bit of a control freak, so he has to do all the planting and he does all the spraying because uh, that's was always, that's what he built his business to begin with as a custom applicator. Right. So he doesn't trust anybody else to spray his crops or to plant them. And I like to harvest because then you can see <laughs> what really... What, you know, variety A and variety B might be identical on a yield map, 
but variety B might be a challenge to harvest or could be. So what are you telling me here? In, in no-till, <laughs> you got to plant, you got to spray and harvest. So you're the only employee here on all 1900 acres? Well, no, we've got, like, we've got a, a, a I got to harass you. We have a truck driver and a green card operator, and I'm the green card operator of last resort. Okay. Um, only when nobody else uh, is around on hunting weekends and packer weekends. Uh, but we've scaled our operation so that we haven't grown much in 20 years probably because yeah. Charlie likes to right. do it all himself and, and that's the way we've scaled our operation. What do you got for a sprayer? Um, we've got a case I ate <laughs> with my go to a Hagee. I think one of the things that these no-tours have found out that they, they want to do their own spraying. They don't want to trust the co-ops or do it or get it done on time. And so the, the ones that have invested in a really good sprayer, whether it's a pull type or a self-propelled, all of a sudden they're making many more trips because they got it. And if they want to put fungicides sure. on or insecticides, yep. They, yep. they got it. I mean, you, you'll, you'll hear a guy who's got 2,000 acres and he's spraying 5,600 acres. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> well, all our corn depends upon how things go. Yeah. But normally if it's a non-GMO corn, we would probably come in and clean that field up with glyphosate at a, not a reduced rate, but probably not an excessive rate. And that would be before corn emerges. And we could piggyback it with a residual, but if we have enough weeds out there, we're gonna, this is our thought, that, and our agronomist somewhat too, nine out of 10 times you can piggyback your uh, residual on top of the glyphosate. Sure. But if you have a challenging weed issue, you're gonna lose some uh, effective efficacy or whatever it is of that glyphosate. So then you'll glyphosate, then you'll come in with your residual, okay? And then if you have any other problems, you know, that's almost a given. So you've got 1,200 acres of corn, automatically almost two passes. So now you're right. at 2,400. Now you're gonna have five, four to 500 of beans, so that'll be your residual going down, and then a post. So now you're up to 12 to 1,300 acres. And then you're gonna have probably of those two passes, you probably on half of them have a third pass. So now you're gonna be then, you know, you're up to that four to 5,000, and that's where it gets to be a long day. <laughs> For a long season anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you've, um, You've tried a number of ideas on, uh, on sizing residue. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what you've tried and what's working. Well, you know, years ago, you didn't have a lot of options, but with the chopping head, I thought that would be a real answer, the chopping head, okay? And it did, in fact, really enhance and make an ability to strip till no-till. The thing that we've ran into after so many years, and this is controlled traffic where it really um, sets it apart now, is if you look at that harvester running right there, you're, you're running rows 12, 11 and 12. Well, the rotary chopper underneath, which most everybody has, is a clockwise rotation, sure. and it, it tends to shift your residue to your right. Okay, mm -hmm. so now if that harvester turns around and comes back the other direction, that, that row 12 is going to be right up next to the other one. 
Now you could probably take a Vermeer baler and bale that residue in them two rows. <laughs> and that's what really makes it tough that uh, for um, residue management. So what are you using on your combine right now for this? Okay, well we worked at the strip or shred select gentleman down there and um, he's, you know, Marion Calmer's got a fairly good system. Marion's doesn't fit our harvester, okay? It, it won't fit the Lexon head. And so uh, that was kind of ruled out. Marion's uh, uh, engineer came up here one summer and he took all the specs and everything he could. And uh, they just, the Lexon system, it's not like uh, John Deere or Case IH where, you know, right. there's thousands of right, them out right. here. It's more of a it's niche. Right. They're trying to increase market share, but for Marion would be a limited market. And then he tried to uh, tool up and make it, but he it wouldn't fit into the configuration. So then we went with the Shred Select. He had an option that would it would work in, and that's worked quite well. We've taken and documented some pictures of that, and uh, it's not a mat. It's it's more. Sizing and, and just breaking that stalk. And we've tried rollers, rolling after soybeans. Um, and, well, that, that's got some potential, but for, for the residue management, it seems like if we can kind of keep that stalk somewhat intact, but have it broke and places for the microbial activity and just degrading is, is a good good benefit. How, like, how high would you like the stalks in the field? Well, knee it, high okay. about, it just depends upon if you have down corn, you're gonna be right down right. into it. That's variable. What do you think over the years has been your biggest mistake <laughs> with no tiller stripped? I wouldn't say we never had a May. Every day there's this mistake. <laughs> you can learn more from the mistakes. that nitrogen thing that we tried that yeah, one year? Yeah, that <laughs> was not really. Remember the end doctor? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We spent John a lot Cole, of money on machinery. John Colburn. Remember? Yeah. He thought he had that thing down pat. He had a good idea, and, you know, and he passed away. But he was using the electrolysis of the soil somewhat of mm -hmm. predicting yeah. the nitrate in there yeah. you know and um, yeah uh, well yeah the, so that's one mistake i mean they're like <laughs> I don't know. Last week we made a mistake, we, probably. We, but you know, he also has a friend who said that uh, it's a good thing he doesn't change wives like he changes machinery because <laughs> it would be a lot more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think's been the biggest personal benefit to you people from strip tilling and no tilling? Biggest benefit? Well, it certainly has been more fuel efficient, wouldn't you say? We're oh, yeah. saving on fuel and trips through the field, right. so it cuts down on labor. Well, just your legacy of the soil that's going to happen. You know, this whole concept and how we're doing things, you know, we would have known this back in the 80s. Man, you know where we would be today? <laughs> <laughs> but we do have ground that's 25, 20, you know, and, we, and that corn ground is part of it, not the whole farm. But when we started working and doing this back in, in, the, in the late 80s and early uh, when did we get that WH and W farm? We got that in the nineties, I think. Yeah, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, all the other fields like that, and but then uh, machinery's evolved some too. 
Oh, so we, down. you know, when we started farming together in 1980, we took a motto for a farm. It's on our farm sign. It's our soil's our strength. So for us, it's always been about the soil and what can we do to make our soils better. <laughs> so you got you you rent some land. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cash crop it. Or yes, cash rent. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what do landlords think of strip till and no till? They've been quite receptive. I think yeah. the ones that care and yeah. that live on the land, you know, we have some that are absentee. They, they're not really farmers. Right. You know, we have others that are more invested and involved in what we're doing. And, and they, they really like, we have some pollinator habitat and that gets them excited because for one thing, it looks pretty, but it, yeah. that also, there's another thing, you know, the native species and the pollinators, it, if it makes people realize we're doing good things in the country, right. it's great. That's good. So Nancy, you spent a few years on the National Soybean Board and you were president of U.S. Farmers and Ranchers, traveled the world. What do people around the world think of no-till and strip-till? We see it growing in other areas or not? Well, I don't know if we see it growing. I guess I'm a little frustrated that it's not growing even more in the U.S. Um, and seems like we've kind of hit a, a stopping or a stumbling block here. I don't know why. Um, it's all part of the sustainability effort. And right. so that's a great story when you talk about sustainability to people around the world. And, and I think that's what they care about more than anything. Are we going to see consumers wanting to know what field their flower came out of? <laughs> Well, that's a good question. Um, and, and I would suppose the way technology is going, we probably can. You know, we grow a lot of IP soybeans. So the, the soybeans we grow are identity preserved. And, and it used to be when we started growing them that the Japanese wanted to see them and we would take pictures. They'd come yeah. and look at them. Um, now they just know and they, they trust the people they're buying it from. Um, having had that, that I think trust is, is a pretty key word. I think the consumer just wants to feel good about what they eat, and we we should be doing that. We right. should be making sure they do. What have I missed? Oh boy! Well, you know, we <laughs> do. We are committed to um, renewable fuels. We have a personal okay, wind energy system, a small wind turbine over on one farm that is connected to the grid, and it offsets about seventy percent of our electrical needs on the farm. Wow, that's, that's been a lot. going since two thousand and eight. And right here by our shop, we have a solar array that this will be year three. 2008, we were part of a, um, a, a trial run with NRCS and we did a whole farm energy audit. And, and that was a real eye opener for me. I mean, they looked at our lighting. We have a, a big fan in here now because of that. We upgraded our grain drying system, which mm -hmm. made Charlie very happy he could get more new equipment um, <laughs> to get it more energy efficient. We got a more yeah. energy efficient grain dryer. All those things are really important. Even just the lighting in your shop and your workplace are things you need to think about. And right. there are places you can save, especially in these tough economic times. So we're very proud of those things. And we believe very strongly in renewable energy and doing anything we can to be part of that. Just another example of you being innovators here in <laughs> Beaver Dam. You're trying, willing to try something that you believe in and see yeah. if it'll work. Before we wrap up this episode, Frank is going to share a question that came from a listener email. A reader recently asked how many total farms in the U.S. might be no-tilling and how it broke down for other tillage practices. Well, we recently got the U.S. Census of Agriculture that was done in 2017 
and it compared tillage practices for the year 2012 versus 2017. The total farms in no-till hadn't varied much over the five years. It was around 280,000 farms in each of the two years. However, the number of farms doing reduced tillage went up by 10% to around 217,000 farms. And when you look at intensive tillage or moldboard plowing or conventional tillage, there was a drop of 35% among farmers doing this. For 2017, the figure was about 265,000 farms compared to 406,000 in 2012. Thanks to Frank Lesseter, Charlie Hammer, and Nancy Cavazangian for today's talk. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash notillmaverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlach at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Notal Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.